Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter number 4, and I promise you we'll finish this chapter tonight. (laughs) We got down through verse number 41, and tonight we're going to look at the last three verses uh, of this chapter. Going through this study, and I mentioned this before, one of the difficult things is in situations like this where you've got two or three or four verses maybe, and it seems like, well, you know, why don't I just go on to the, you know, we think of the big stuff, you know, maybe the headline stories that, uh, that people are familiar with. And sometimes in doing that, we, we overlook some, at least in my thinking, some real precious nuggets of truth. And the more I read these verses here, I thought, you know, we we just can't skip over this. And so we're not going to do that. And and remember, the purpose in this study is to keep our focus on the Lord God of Elijah. And so it uh, wouldn't be right if we just ignored something that he did that was so great and, and so necessary. Uh, for those people at that time. Verse number 42. And there came a man from Belshazzar. Now I broke that down this afternoon. And my pronunciation was not like that. But when I look at the syllables there. there uh, I was wrong. And uh, so we could say a man from Houston. And whatever. whatever. <laughs> well. I hope Bev's not listening. I'll catch it when I get home. I I shouldn't say that, though. And he brought the man of God bread, the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and full ears of corn in the husk thereof. And he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. And his servitor said, What should I set before before a hundred men. And he said again, Give the people that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, They shall eat, and shall leave thereof. And so he said it before them, and they did eat, and left thereof according to the word of the Lord. One of the most important things in studying the Bible is to consider the context. And uh, that's especially true whenever we think about the miracles of Elisha because, as I think I said last week, those miracles are intended to convey a message. They're not for entertainment. They're to convey a message. Some of you might remember me preaching the series from the Gospel of John, uh, uh, the miracles with a message. And... uh, We went through those seven miracles that John records, and he did so that we might believe. And and so there there is something to be said about that here, that God God is using this miracle to convey a message. Look at verse 38 for just a moment, where it says here, the sons of the prophets. Now remember, the sons of the prophets are those that are gathered around Elisha. These men are God's messengers in training. It's going to be their job to declare the Word of God 
to a stubborn, rebellious nation. And let me tell you, that's not an easy task whenever you think about it. And he knew, they knew, that they were going to face hardships, opposition. In some cases, they were going to face persecution. And so they're well aware of the fact that to fulfill their mission, they're going to need God's help. And if they needed to learn anything about the ministry, it was this, that God will provide the needs of those who trust Him and obey Him. And that's what this little little short story here is all about because here we see God taking a meager measure of food and feeding a multitude, at least a hundred people, with it. And so surely there's something that we can learn from this that will encourage us. Now, verse number 42, we're introduced here to an unnamed man. I have no idea. Uh, who this fellow was. God didn't give us his name. He just says here that uh, there there came a, a man. And so we don't know anything about him. But what we do know is that God designed it this way, and he did so, I think, because he wants us to think about that. He wants us to think about why didn't he give us the name? Why didn't he give us the history? Uh, he didn't tell us anything about his family or anything like that. And so... Uh, that, that's all we know. He's just an unnamed guy. And I think God wants us to remember there are a lot of unnamed soldiers, a lot of unnamed servants that have made great contributions to the work of the Lord. But whoever this man was, he represents all of those who are faithful to God and have fulfilled the duties that God has given them. God knows their names, and that's all that really matters. I'm so glad that God never forgets what we do for Him. Amen? Many years ago, and and I I told part of the story, I think it was last week, about whenever we started a a church there in Fairgrove, Missouri, and started under a brush arbor. Uh, And during the course of all of that, we finally got in a little concrete block building and Boy, it wasn't it wasn't nearly finished. I'd re- resigned my job, depending. Well, we went through some really tough times. We had no idea where we were going to get the food from, or how God was going to supply our needs. And there was a a pastor by the name of Fred Needy. Fred was well known there in the Ozarks. He had a radio broadcast that went far and wide and he was a man very well respected and Fred uh, challenged his church to to help us out he had invited me over to preach on one occasion there in the church which was 10 times larger or more than that larger than our little church and and uh, so anyway the church got together a not not a basket, but just a bunch of stuff. I mean, uh, there there were some clothes there for some of the kids. There was food and all kinds of stuff. But there was a note in there just expressing their appreciation and the fact that they were praying for us. And, and there was a, a a verse of scripture, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read it to you tonight. Hebrews chapter number six. And I have to admit that although I had read this verse, I'd never really thought about it 
all that much. But here's what it said, verse 10, Hebrews 6. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. I read that, and I tell you, I about had a spell. I mean, I it, it just floored me. And he goes on and says, And we desire every one of you to show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. I cannot tell you how much that encouraged me. Just to know that, because let me tell you, whenever you're out on a limb and you feel like the devil's trying to cut it off and you don't know where your next meal's coming from, how you're going to feed your kids, uh, you, you, you just sometimes wonder, what in the world am I doing? Uh, and uh, Satan will try to frighten you every way that he can. He'll try to convince you that what you're doing is in vain anyway, you know, and... Uh, and just to have that assurance by everybody else. When it seems that nobody knows or nobody cares and you don't know what you're going to do, you need to remember that God remembers. God remembers. God knows what you're going through. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen? And so here we see that the Lord using this occasion to introduce an unnamed man. And, you know, I think there's a lot of times, you know, that um, we put too much emphasis upon, you know, somebody's name, somebody's reputation and what have you. And we, we think, boy, you know, he's one of the, he's one of those big picture uh, uh, preachers, you know, he, he preached at this conference and he did this and he did that. And, and, uh, he, you know, he's, he's written ten books and blah, 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 blah. Let me tell you, some of the most faithful servants God has are little old country preachers out there you've never heard of, you never will know. Not only, not just preachers, but there are those that minister in nursing homes and jails and prisons. People that you and I will never know, but God knows. And, and, and it's much more important for us to be faithful than to try to be famous. Now, I want you to notice something. Now, I don't know his name. As I said, I don't know anything about his, his family history or whatever. But here it says he's from a place called Belshalisa is the way I would pronounce it, which is, I'm sure, wrong. Why did God put that in there in the first place? Why does God even... Man. Big, long, hard to. Just as there's a reason why he didn't tell you the name of the man, there's a reason he told us the name of the place. That place was associated with Baal, Baal worship. And that last part of that word means third. It speaks about uh, 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 multiplicity. It, that there's only one God. They believed that there were many gods. And it was their belief that Baal was the God that provided their needs. That's what they believed. He's the one that provided their needs. So here is a fellow that we don't know his name that comes from a place associated with Baal worship. And 
and he comes on the scene and God meets the needs that Baal had not met for them. That, that's, I think, the lesson in this. And, and, but notice he used a man to do that. God could have just rained down manna from heaven on them and said, now, these, these 100 guys, are, they're hungry, they need something to eat, and just, uh, I'm going to rain down manna from heaven. He could have done that. He could, he could have, you know, caused crops to spring up overnight. But he didn't use, use that means. He chose to use a man. And whenever we look at this man, there are three things that stand out. First of all is his awareness because he understands the, the requirements, his responsibilities before God. He knew that God demanded the first fruits. Now we could go, you know, back in the Old Testament and talk a great deal about that, but as you well know, God demanded the first fruits from His people. Uh, that was, you know, their acknowledgement that God has given us the harvest, that He's the one that has provided for us. And this man knew that. He knew he had a responsibility. And he knew that circumstances do not dictate what we ought to do. In other words, they do not change God's commands. Remember, this is a time of dearth. That is a time of shortage. The people are doing without. He could have said, you know, ordinarily, I would bring the first fruits to the Lord. You know, ordinarily, I would do that. But this is a time of shortage. I'm just barely getting by. I need this for myself. I need this for my family. Or, you know, I can put it out there on the market and sell it for big bucks or whatever. But he doesn't do any of that. He recognized he had a responsibility to God and he wasn't excused from duty just because it was difficult. And so here in this time of great need, he decides to give the first fruits. Now, try to, try to imagine how maybe his family or his friends must have felt. I remember shortly after I was saved, in fact, it was the fellow that was responsible When I got saved and uh, doing my best to serve the Lord. And uh, I'll never forget his mother one day, whom I, was a family friend, uh, and we, we, we'd known his parents, you know, nearly all of my life. And I'll never forget her giving him down the road and giving me a lecture on the fact that here he was giving money to the church whenever he couldn't hardly pay his own bills. She didn't understand. Come to find out later, she wasn't saved, even though she professed to be saved. And about ten years later, she got saved uh, during uh, one of the services there in Fairgrove after I was pastoring. But at that time, I was a new Christian. And she was being critical. that how, Why would you give money to the church when you don't have enough money to pay your bills? Well... He knew something she didn't know, that it pays for us to be obedient to the Lord. And I feel certain that, that no doubt there were some people that thought, man, have you lost your mind? Uh, this, this is a time of shortage. Why in the world would you give what you've got whenever you don't have any hope of getting any more? Just keep what you've got. So this man, whoever he was, made it obvious that he was trusting in the Lord to supply his need. And you think about the testimony 
that that would have left to others. And, and think about the testimony that we ought to leave to others. It ought to be evident to people that we know, our family and friends, that our trust is in the Lord. So this is a man with great awareness. But not only that, notice his affection. You know, a lot of folks are aware of their... ...to sacrifice, to give up what he's got. And he loved people. That's what love does. Love will manifest itself in kindness. And, and, and I think from this and from many other verses, we learn that we never, we never ever do enough until we do our best. Whatever our best is, we never do enough until we do our best. That's what God requires from us. And, you know, for some people it's one thing. For some other people it's another thing. Because, you know, it means one thing for you to give your best. You might be able to give a whole lot more money than somebody else can. Or it might be you have a lot more talent than someone else does. But giving our best is all that God requires. And this man loved the Lord and people enough that he was willing to give his best. But there's another factor here other than his awareness and his affection. And that's his acknowledgement. I want you to notice where he took the first fruits to. He knew that Elisha was God's representative. And so he takes it to Elisha. This is the man that God is working through. And so in order for he takes it to the proper channel, gives through the proper channel. You know, it's not enough for us to just give or, or just to do religious works we ought to give in the place that God has designated. Many of you could quote Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 10. You know, there's some folks that wish it wasn't in the Bible. <laughs> but, but most of you could quote that. You know, the Bible says, bring all the tithes and the offerings where? Into the storehouse. Why? That was God's, that was God's designated place. You go way back over in the Old Testament, and originally that first house of God was the tabernacle. It was a temporary structure that they used as they're traveling in the wilderness. When they're settled in the promised land, there is a new structure called the temple, and it, it was the permanent temple. And there, that was God's house of worship. On both occasions, God manifested His glory when He entered that place. Whenever it was finished, there was a dedication service, and the glory of the Lord, it says, filled that place. It was God showing them I'm taking up my residence here. And if they wanted to serve God, give to God, or whatever, it was always through that appointed channel. They didn't have the right to just go out on their own and do their own thing. Well, today we don't have a tabernacle. Today we don't worship God in temples made with hands. Today the Lord's house is the Lord's church. That's the designated place. Let me read you a verse that maybe you've never thought about. 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. And here Paul, as he challenges uh, these folks uh, to receiving the collection, and he says in verse 1, Now, concerning the collection for the saints. He's talking about the poor saints in Jerusalem. And here he's encouraging the church to respond to their need. He says, As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. In other words, you're not off the hook. 
You've got a responsibility to respond to that need. And he says, upon the first day of the week, that each or every one of you, notice, lay by him in store. Now, whenever he says lay by him in store, he's not talking about keeping it just close to you. He's talking about lay by him in store and it implies the same thing as Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10 where it talks about bring all the offerings and the tithes to the storehouse of the Lord. And he's talking about the designated place. And he says, as God hath prospered that there be no gatherings when I come. In other words, they were to bring their offerings to the Lord's church. We are to work through the Lord's church. There's not another organization on the face of the earth that has been authorized by God to do the work of God. No one else, for example, has the authority to baptize. Several years ago, uh, this has been 40-some years ago probably, Pat Boone got, uh, well, I don't want to, I don't want to belittle him or anything like that, but he just really mixed up when it comes to spiritual things. And he got out of secular music and got into uh, singing and preaching and witnessing for the Lord. I'm glad for that part of it. But uh, it made headlines whenever he was baptizing the converts in the swimming pool at a Howard Johnson's motel. And you, by the way, you can be baptized in a swimming pool or, you know, any other water sufficient for immersion. That's not the point. The point is that Pat Boone doesn't have the authority to baptize people. I don't have the authority on my own to baptize people. The church has that authority. I think about Billy Graham. And, and, and I, I think about, you know, and thank God you look back over the years and he is one man that, that was never, as far as I know, any smear on his record. He, he's a man that, you know, was above reproach in so many ways and did so much good. I don't agree with him on several things, but, but you can't deny the fact a lot of people's going to be in heaven because of his preaching. But the point is, God did not ordain the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association to do the work of God. The Lord started His church to do that. And it's important that we recognize the proper authority by which, you know, we serve the Lord. It ought to be in and through the church. Now, others can go through the same activity, but it does not carry the same weight in God's sight. That, that's like saying, you know, I, I, I'm a master counterfeiter. I can counterfeit money that that is good or better than what the government prints. I don't doubt but what there's some folks out there that can do that. The only problem is they don't have the authority to do that. That's a good way to end up in prison. You don't have the authority to do that, you see. So this man, whatever his name was, displayed great wisdom, understanding, and knowing the proper channel to work through. He didn't just take it out there to just anybody and say, here, these are the first fruits, and I just know that God wants me to give them, and so, uh, you know, I've never met you before, but here it is. I, you, you know, you've got a good reputation, and I'll trust you. No. He knew who it was that God was using at that time in history, and so he brought the first fruits to Elisha. Now, notice 
in verse 42, the last part of it, the command of the prophet. As he comes there with the first fruits, notice, and he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. This is Elisha's sensitivity to God's guidance. It speaks to his sacrificial nature. In other words, what, notice, this fellow brought it to Elisha, and Elisha could have said, A little stockpile now. I'm good for, you know, a few weeks. I, I'm good to go. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for supplying my needs. Elisha could have just kept what he received, but he didn't do that. Elisha, in turn, turned around and said, give it to the people. Give it to the people. Why would he say that? Because he knew that God was going to take care of him. Now, can you imagine what a great lesson that was for those young preachers gathered around him, those sons of the prophets? Here they are listening to him, learning from him, and this has to be one of the most powerful lessons they ever learned from Elisha, that you can trust the Lord, that he will supply your needs. And, and, and here is Elisha demonstrating that as soon as he receives... He commanded, give it to the people. Now look at verse 43, and here we see the confusion of the servant. I'm supposing he's talking about Jehazi here, who was his servant, the, you know, the one that had followed him and been so faithful. And, and verse 43 says, And his servitor said, What? Should I set this before a hundred men? Now notice he's thinking here in terms of what he could do instead of what God could do. He's confused because he's depending upon reasoning rather than a revelation from God. You know, I think probably he felt just like Philip did, you know, just before the Lord fed the multitude with the five barley loaves and the two small fishes there in John chapter 6, you know. The Lord asked, of course, the disciples, you know, they, they, they looked at the multitude and said, oh, send them away, you know, we, we don't, we can't supply them, just send them away. No, the Lord said, what do you have? What do you got? Oh, there's a lad here. Boy, I'm amazed at the way God places people. There's a lad here. And there have been so many times just in the years that I've been the pastor of this church and, you know, the Lord takes someone home to glory or somebody moves on or somebody falls out or whatever it is and you wonder to yourself, what are we going to do now? Who's going to step up? I mean, God, what are we going to do? We lost this person or we lost that family. What are we going to do? And uh, it might not be a lad, but you turn around and all of a sudden you realize there is someone here that God put here to carry on and do the work. There's a lad here. Of course, he doesn't have much. Five loaves, two small fishes. What are they among so many? That's Philip's attitude. What good's this going to do? There's a multitude out there. What good will this do? Look, that's what Jehazi is thinking here. That's what's going through his mind here. He said, These barley loaves and ears of corn.
always gets us in trouble. So many times we worry, we wring our hands and we fret because we look at our situation and we think, you know, I'm not sufficient for this. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how my needs are going to be met. And and let me tell you, look, we got folks in the church going through really, really tough times. I mean, even right now as I speak, we got people going through really tough times. And it's just our human nature to wonder, wow, what am I going to do? I, I don't see any way out of this. And let me tell you, the thing that breaks my heart the most is when I see people in that kind of a condition and they still don't get serious with God. That scares me for them. If we want things to get better, we need to get better. And that's the problem a lot of times. What am I going to do? That's what he's thinking. Verse 43. I I like that. Uh, You could go through the Bible and preach several sermons on that word again. Jesus, we find that of him. He he said again. And he prayed again. And he said again, give the people that they may eat. So he's repeating what he said, right? But notice he adds something to it now. For thus saith the Lord, they shall eat and shall leave thereof. That is, there will be some leftovers. That shows us that Elisha had received a revelation from God. Notice, thus saith the Lord. He evidently hadn't told the servant, he hadn't told anybody else, but God had told Elisha, I want you to take this and I want you to give it to the people and it'll be enough for them to eat. So God told him what to do. And God told him what he would do. Think about that. God told him what to do. This is what I want you to do. And I'll, you do that, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to feed the people. That, that was a promise God gave to Elisha, and Elisha is proclaiming that promise. Just like we ought to do. Proclaiming the promises of God to those in their time of need. Well, verse 44, here we see the consequences of obeying God. So he said it before them, and they did eat and left there. That doesn't mean they ate and got up and left, by the way. That's implying when it says they left thereof, he's talking about the fact that there were leftovers. Now, whenever you look at the number of people and the amount of food, you say, yeah, but there's 20 loaves. That, you know, man, that'd be enough. And be loaves. No, 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 no. You don't understand what's meant by loaves. We're talking about those little, that little flatbread they made in that day. We're not, you know, half a dozen, half a dozen hardy men could have eaten all of this up in short order. But here a hundred people have eaten to the full. And there are leftovers. Just like there in John chapter six after the multitude was fed. And the Lord said, go out now and gather up the fragments. We don't want to waste anything. The things that remain. And they gathered up 12 basketfuls. 
That's more than they started with. And the multitude had been fed, and they've got more than they had in the beginning. And that's the way that God works. Now, He doesn't tell us exactly the measure of what was left, but we know that there was leftovers. But notice, according to the Word of the Lord. When we look at this, the thing that ought to jump out at us and we ought to learn from it's the importance of knowing God's will. Knowing God's will. Elisha knew what God wanted. And, and we ought to be knowledgeable of the will of God. We don't have any excuse for not knowing the will of God. And so this reminds us we need to know the will of God. We need to believe God's word. In other words, it's not enough just to know it. We have to believe it. And then we have to obey God's commands. And whenever we do that, good things always happen. Whenever we obey God, we don't have to worry about a lack of God's supply, that God's going to supply our needs. And notice, God supplied the needs. Notice I said needs. I didn't say God supplies our greed. He supplies our needs. God doesn't always give us everything that we want. But when a child of God is in the will of God, God gives him everything that he needs. God's too wise to give us everything we want. He knows that would ruin us in short order. But if we do His will, we can depend upon Him supplying our needs. Uh, again, Philippians 4.19, Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, But my God shall, no doubt about it, that's emphatic, He shall supply all of your need Need, singular, doesn't supply all of your needs that you're going to have all the time, but it's moment by moment and day by day, your daily bread. God shall supply all of your need. Uh, you say, well, how do I know it'll be enough? Well, read on. According to His riches in glory through Christ Jesus. I mean, there's no shortage with God, and God promised I will supply your need. Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. God said, I will supply your needs. Every Christian ought to live in such a way that every day they live in the confidence of knowing I don't have to worry about whether God's going to take care of me or not. You know, I may have to tighten up my belt. I might have to do without a few things that I'd like to have. I might not be able to keep up with the Joneses, so on and so forth. But that's all right. God said having food and raiment therewith to be content. And we ought not to complain if, if we have that. God supplied the need. But notice, God satisfied the people. And I want you to notice... Uh, over in Isaiah, there's a great promise that fits into this. Talking about how the Lord satisfies us. Isaiah 58, 11. You might want to jot it down in the margin of your Bible. I'm going to read it. And the Lord shall guide thee continually. There are no gaps. I don't have to go a year or two, you know, just kind of wandering around. What in the world does God want me to do? No, God guides us continually every day of our life. And satisfy thy soul in drought. And another boy, I mean, whenever the, there's no rain and the, 
you know, you're in a dust storm and there are no crops. But notice, in times like that, God's able to satisfy thy soul. Notice, and make fat thy bones. That, that speaks about being prosperous. And thou shalt be like a, a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail year after year after year after year. Whenever I was a boy and going hunting with my daddy, this little place called Phoenix, Missouri. At one time it had been a sort of a booming place. It was out in the middle of nowhere, and there was a limestone quarry there, and that's where the people worked, and they had built a little old schoolhouse that was still there, hadn't been used in years and years and years. And there was uh, tucked away down there in that valley under the big old sycamore trees and what have you, there was a spring. And we knew every year, regardless of the time of the year, even whenever there's having the dust storms in Oklahoma blowing across the Ozarks and we, our, our lakes were drying up because there hadn't been any rain, you could go down there to that spring and boy, there was that sparkling clear water oozing out of the ground and you could depend on it. Let me tell you, that's what God is saying here. This is a promise that God was giving to Israel that it'll be like a well-watered garden. In other words, He's simply telling them, you obey Me, you trust Me, you follow Me, and He says, I'll make sure that you prosper. I'll take care of you in your time of need. But one more thing. I want you to notice, remember this morning I said the title of the message was More Than Enough. And here, lastly, we see that God surpassed the needs of the people. Notice that word leave and the word left. It literally means left over, remain, excess. It literally means in the Hebrew, more than enough. And God wanted them to understand that, that He would supply their needs. Let's go back to those young preachers that every day they're sitting around Elisha as He is lecturing them and helping them, helping develop them into prophets going out into the country and what have you. And boy, I'm, the lesson they learned here that God has promised to supply our needs and give us more than enough. And, and whether it's our past needs, our present needs, our future needs, as Paul said, and remember I mentioned those superlatives this morning, that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever even ask or think. Well, that verse is so powerful when you stop and think about it. And that's where our focus needs to be, not on our limitations, but on God's ability. And we've got to be ever so careful that we don't, that we don't limit God as a result of our unbelief and our disobedience. That's exactly what happened in Psalm 78, there in verse number 41, where it talks about the fact that they, they disobeyed God, they doubted, and it says, and they limited the Holy One of Israel. Don't limit what God wants to do in your life. I'm not trying to tell you that God will give you what He has given to somebody else. That's not the point. But God will give you everything you need, everything and even more than enough. 
And I look back over the years from the time that Bev and I started out on this journey and wonder to myself, how did we make it through that? Well, we made it through that because we're not perfect, but we, we tried our best to do what we felt God wanted us to do. And we've got more than enough. Every time I have a birthday or every time there's a Christmas or whatever and somebody says, what do you want for your birthday? I don't I don't need anything. I'm serious. I can't think of anything, anything I need. Uh, nothing. Isn't it? That blows my mind to think about that God has allowed me to be in a place where I've got everything I need. I don't deserve that. And I'm not trying to set myself up as a perfect example. I don't mean it that way, folks. I'm just telling you that as a child of God, if you do your best to live in the will of God, you're not going to have to worry about whether your needs are met. Now, you can't go out here and make a fool out of yourself and say, oh, well, the Bible has said God will supply all of your needs, and so you go out here and make unwise investments and do stupid stuff with your money. God will let you end up down yonder in the pig pen hungry, you see. But whenever we do what we ought to do, then, then we take all of the limitations off of God and we, uh, through trusting Him and obeying Him, God supplies more than enough. Uh, I, I've often said one of the things that really helped me as a young Christian, especially as a young preacher, was reading the biographies and autobiographies of, of, of the great men that had served the Lord and one of the stories that really inspired me was the story of George Mueller there in Bristol, England, and uh, the, the orphanages that man started. And, I, you know, I, there's no way I can tell you all of the stories, that true stories, the times that there with all of those little children, he had no idea, he had no idea where the next meal was coming from. He'd have all of the children brought in and sit down at the table and didn't have any food. He had them all brought in and, 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 and all of a sudden there was a, the bell rang or the door knocked or something and all of a sudden somebody showed up and somebody out in the street had a load of food. I'm talking about time and time and time again that man fed and raised all of those children just by trusting in the Lord. Rather than asking man to help, he didn't, he didn't do that. He just prayed. He just prayed. And, and his testimony was, you know, God knows my need and I don't need to ask man to help. All I need to do is just pray and ask God for help. Because it's not for me, you know, it's for all of these kids. And God took care of him. Now let me tell you, you can, you can go through the story of whether it's Charles Spurgeon or whoever it might be. And you can look back and you can see why God blessed them so abundantly. And it's the fact that they were willing to trust God. They were willing to obey God. And that's not to say they never went through any hard times, by the way. But it means that God always supplied their need. That's exactly what God wants to do for every single person here. And there, there's nothing mystical about it. There's no reason we can't understand it. That whenever we do as God has commanded, God has promised more than enough. And that's enough for me. Amen. Let's all stand.
Heavenly Father, how we thank you. How we thank you, Lord, for the uh, not just the information that we have about this unnamed man. And, and not just what we know about Elisha, what a great man he was, or his servant. But Lord, what we know that you've revealed about you. And how that in that time of need that you stepped in and you intervened and you used people, just like you're using people today, you used people to meet the needs of others. And Lord, I pray tonight that you'll use us. Make us a channel of blessing to others. Lord, we pray tonight that if we have been stubborn and rebellious against you, if we've been doubtful of you, Lord, tonight, forgive us of those sins. Help us to, to not limit what you want to do in our life and, and not limit what you want to do in this church. May we take off of the, the shackles of unbelief and give ourselves freely to your will for our life. For we ask it in Jesus' name. While we stand as we sing tonight, if God's speaking to your heart, you come.